Today on the show, the future of news and media with one of the region's best authorities on the subject. Hello and welcome to Inside Finger Lakes from FingerLakes1.com. I'm Josh Durso and Steve Keeler is my guest. He's the chair of the Media and Arts School at Cuga Community College, a frequent flyer on our program. He's been here about a half dozen times in the last two years alone talking about this very topic. So first of all, Steve, obviously appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk with us. Um, interesting sure. stuff going on. We're, in, we're living through a moment in history is what a lot of people keep saying over and over again. Um, in terms of coverage, what have your thoughts been on news coverage of the coronavirus pandemic? Well, I, you know, I think this uh, pandemic really uh, points out the issue that, uh, you know, people want um, reliable information. And where can one turn for reliable information? And, and, and that turns out to be the, uh, you know, the major news, news organizations, uh, the daily newspapers, um, the traditional news networks, um, CNN, Fox, uh, MSNBC. Um, you know, those are the organizations that give us reliable, verified, fact-checked information. And I think uh, we've seen, you know, viewership for all of those things skyrocket during this, uh, during the pandemic crisis as people have stayed home. And I think, you know, this is, like you said, it's, it's, it's a moment in history. It's something none of us have experienced before. None of us have lived through a pandemic before. And so we don't know anything about it. Um, and so we want, in, we're hungry for information about it. We're all hungry for information about it. And so when that happens, uh, just like in any kind of crisis, um, most of us, not all of us, but most of us will look towards what we consider to be reliable news sources um, for that information. And that tends to be what we would consider to be the traditional news sources. Um, so I think, you know, something like this pandemic really points out the dependence um, that we have on those, on those sources for information about current events. And when you look at the coverage, um, what's been the big opportunity that you've seen or the, the thing that feels missing from your perspective? Uh, what's missing from the perspective, you know, I wouldn't say, um, a whole lot, uh, you know, as I watch the news and, and, and you know, and you know me, I'm kind of a news junkie. I'll, I, you know, I read papers and, uh, you know, I check internet feeds and news feeds and I watch uh, a variety of television news sources. I mean, it's been pretty wide ranging coverage, um, which I've been kind of surprised at. I mean, the kind of detail they go into um, across the networks and across the newspapers about even sort of small individual stories. Um, but if anything's been been missing, um, you know, I think there's some hidden stories out there. Um, you know, uh, we've heard anecdotal information that, uh, you know, alcohol consumption has risen dramatically. I haven't seen much about that. Uh, we have anecdotal information that, uh, you know, obesity is on the rise because of this. People are sitting home and eating too much. Um, you know, so those are kind of health issues we haven't heard much about. Um, I, you know, and speaking from my perspective as someone who works at a college, uh, you know, I think the news media have really missed the story about what's going to happen in colleges this fall. They've tended to focus on the Ivy League schools 
uh, and what they're going to do. And that is not what people's experience is with college. I mean, there's an elite few that go to those schools, but the vast majority of us go to um, state colleges and community colleges. Um, that's where most of higher education is. And you know, those schools tend to be economic engines in their communities. Uh, they're in trouble. And I don't think uh, you know, enough has been paid, enough attention has been paid to that. And you know, I think um, perhaps one other thing is, you know, they're just now starting to talk about um, you know, what might happen when businesses reopen. Um, you know, they're paying some attention to it now, um, but I don't think we're getting enough information. I think the, the media could be doing a much, much better information about um, you know, explaining to us um, through experts uh, you know, what it's, what it's going to be like uh, when businesses reopen, when we're back out on the streets, when we're going back into stores, um, you know, what's the new normal going to be, you know, until there's a vaccine. When you look at, obviously, you've got a, a slightly different perspective because you're, you're on a campus, you're working in a college. Um, reopening obviously means one thing for colleges and universities, as you, as you mentioned, and, and planning for a lot of uncertainty this fall. Um, but when you sort of think about your personal life and just sort of the community around you, um, what are sort of, what are your thoughts on the possible scenarios of reopening that have kind of been floated to date? Obviously, it seems like New York is, is going to take the regional approach. Um, but that being said, there's still a lot of hesitation. It does seem like there's still a lot of, um, question and concern about, you know, how safe will it be? How soon will it be safe to go back out um, into the community and, and sort of patronize different types of businesses? <coughs> Excuse me. Where's your headspace at um, with the, the sort of approach and reopening? Well, and, and you know, this is another thing I think that maybe uh, the media has missed. It really, in many ways, uh, doesn't matter what the president says or what a governor says uh, or what a county executive says about reopening. It's really going to be up to us. Um, you know, as I talk to people and I talk to students, um, you know, regardless of what reopens, you know, people are saying, I'm going to stay home. I'm not going to go to this event, or I'm not going to go to that event, or I'm not going to go to this kind of business. Um, and I think that uh, government officials um, are going to be very surprised by the number of people who just don't go out and don't just don't patronize things. And the number of people who work who are going to say, I'm not convinced my workplace is safe. I'm not convinced it's safe to go back to work. And um, I'm not going back. Um, you know, I think that's kind of the untold story is how is how we feel about it. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. There was a story about in the uh, in the local Syracuse paper, the Post Standard, about the state fair and how state fair officials uh, were saying, well, we, we haven't canceled the fair yet. Um, you know, we're going to take a wait and see attitude. Um, myself, I'm pretty convinced the state fair is going to be canceled. I don't know that because they haven't said that. But, you know, here's the thing. Even if the state fair is open, I've gone to the state fair every year since 1972. Never missed one. Okay. Uh, but part of it's because they used to do a show at the state fair. So, you know, I have this sort of um, affection for the fair. Um, but if the fair is open this year, I'm not going. Right. Yeah. And, you know, 
and here's the thing, the governor also said yesterday that if we open on a regional basis, um, regions should not hold events that would attract people from other regions. Well, what does the state fair do? It attracts people from all over the state. So, you know, he's said, you know, that's the kind of event that he's saying should not be held in a region. So, but even so, even if it did run, I, you know, I wouldn't go and, you know, and, and, and this is just a small sample. I mean, I haven't surveyed anybody, but I, everybody I've talked to who were fans of the fair have said, well, I wouldn't go this year. Um, you know, it's just going to be a big incubator for the virus. And, you know, and I think that's a story the media has really missed is, you know, what is it that individuals are going to do? Because people don't always act the way they do in the models that experts and government um, experts provide. It's interesting. Um, and there was an interesting, there was an interesting survey. I'm looking at a newspaper here. Sorry, got the, I have, happen to have this morning's post standard. <laughs> there was an interesting, um, you know, survey that came out. Um, and in the survey, um, what do they say here? Uh, in New York, 67% uh, of New Yorkers say um, that they think large festivals and gatherings are not going to happen this summer. Uh, and if any festivals are held, only 30% of New Yorkers said they would go. It's so. I'm glad you you brought that up because I've I've found the polling to be very um, interesting for a lot of different reasons. I, I'm curious how much of this is surface level fear right now in the moment, and how much of that, or how quickly I guess rather it wanes if there isn't a second wave soon after things reopen. So I'm curious what that trickle looks like. I guess that's where my reservation comes in as, as the journalist. Um, my curiosity is how quickly confidence comes back if we don't see a significant uptick in infection rate or in whatever the case may be, hospitalization, um, when the, the economy starts to reopen. And obviously it is going to be a slow, a slow grind. I, I, to your point, I thought it's been interesting that there seems to be a disconnect between what the governor sometimes says and what the policy actually looks like on sort of like a community by community basis. The golf course dilemma, obviously, that we covered earlier this week, um, Empire State Development issues one set of guidelines for golf right. courses and the governor says something completely different yesterday, and it just creates this confusion. Um, so obviously big events, that's, that's one thing. What are you hearing in terms of sort of the smaller things, say like restaurants and bars and things like that, the sort of like mom pop operations? It does seem like there's, a, at the very least, there is a desire in a lot of these communities around the region um, to you know, continue patronizing these places as much as they possibly can, as safely as they can. Anecdotally speaking, does it feel like uh, the approach is any different there? Well, you know, I think uh, it, if the virus uh, does what most viruses do, and it subsides during the hotter summer months, 
um, you know, people are people. We'll we'll get we'll get someone we'll get somewhat complacent. Um, you know, we'll we'll social distancing. You know, will start to sort of wane a bit. Um, we'll start to patronize places we were afraid to patronize before. Um, and then, you know, that's kind of where, again, the media comes in um, and provides us with information from around the country about what's happening. Um, are there places where the virus comes back? What does that look like? Um, what do government officials do when that comes back? What, more importantly, what do the public health officials do uh, when that comes back? Um, and, and what does a resurgence look like? Um, you know, we want to be armed with information. Um, so if let's say, you know, central New York, which reportedly has a, a pretty low infection rate, let's say you know, the governor said um, he's not uh, averse to opening the state by region if there are low infection rates. So let's say central New York starts to open back up before the rest of the state does. Um, and let's say, you know, because we have that low infection rate, things seem, you know, pretty good. Well, you know, what I want to know is what's happening around the rest of the state? What's happening around the rest of the country? Um, and what are folks doing when it comes back? And, and what should I be looking for when it comes back? You know, that's the information I want from the media. I want the media to be talking to public health officials and I want them to be relaying that information to me so that I'm prepared for any eventuality. And in a crisis, that's the, I think, one of the best services the media can provide is that sort of unvarnished, um, unfiltered information from public health officials. Because let's face it, uh, public health officials have no other way to get that information out than through the media. Um, you know, I live in Onondaga County. And, um, you know, the county executive was giving daily briefings. How was he get, you know, how did I see those daily briefings? Through the media. Mm -hmm. And that to me, you know, that's why the media, to me, that's why the media is an essential service. Because they're, through the media, I'm able to get that direct information. And there would be no other way to get it, really. I mean, I suppose the county executive could, uh, you know, do Facebook Live, but even Facebook is a form of media. So without those, you know, I, I, I can't get any information. And that's, that's where the value is, because let's face it, we're going to need a lot of information uh, as members of the public uh, over the next 18 months about how to act um, during the various stages that this virus could go through. Curious, what do you make? Obviously, we're talking about uh, news and, and coverage and, and what journalists have been focusing on throughout the pandemic. Um, we've heard now a lot about furloughs and layoffs and a lot of other um, disappointing things within the industry. Uh, what's your take on, on sort of the timing of some of these furloughs and layoffs? Is it opportunistic? Is it necessary? Maybe a, a mix of both? Um, Obviously, we're talking about some of the largest companies in the news business who are doing a lot of the furloughing and laying off. But um, what does that sort of say about the whole industry right now? Well, you know, I think it's just accelerating uh, the trend that we've seen over the past 20 years, uh, particularly in the uh, daily and weekly newspaper business, 
um, in which there's, you know, continue to be layoffs, continue to be fewer and fewer uh, reporters and journalists um, at those papers. And it's, it's sad. I mean, it is, it is really sad because I, I, I do think, um, you know, some of these um, outlets, you know, probably won't recover from this. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that, uh, you know, the advertisers will come back um, after this in, in a significant way. Uh, I think revenues will continue to be down. And if revenues continue to stay down, there just won't be as many people working. And it's, un, it's unfortunate because um, I read something the other day that um, something like uh, 80% of news stories um, are generated by daily newspapers. Um, you know, that's really where the groundwork is of news gathering. Um, and as that goes away, um, you know, we are we're much, much poorer for it. Um, and I, I saw a list um, yesterday, uh, and it was just a massive list of newspapers around the country, dailies, weeklies, alternative weeklies. Um, every, I mean, in every section of the country, at every size city and town, where uh, staffs were being furloughed, uh, where there were staff reductions. And, you know, it was, it was just a massive list. I was really, really surprised. Um, and I just don't know how, what, what the bounce back is gonna be like. Um, you know, and we're sort of, but anyway, that, that, enough of that. I, but, I, you know, it's hard, it, it's hard to know, but it looks like uh, things won't get much better for that industry um, after the coronavirus. When optimistic, you know, I, I don't know. I, 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 it's hard for me to call it opportunistic because I really don't know of that many companies that want to go out of business, right? I don't know that there's that many companies that want to pr produce an inferior product. Um, so I think it's more they're being forced to do this because the, you know, the old business model uh, of relying largely on advertising revenue uh, just doesn't seem to be working well um, in the in the newspaper slash media business. So the the reason why I, I asked that, and we've talked a little bit about this before, but um, we hear journalists all the time uh, say, "Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe." Um, but at the end of the day, do we have real confidence that? If there were an influx of subscribers that these corporations that are ultimately looking to drive a profit and grow grow a margin um, would would not lay off staff I, I, I get I, it seems like there is a bit of a break there whether it's factual or whether that's just uh, the perception of some journalists but we tend I at least me personally I've seen that quite a bit anecdotally um, over the last year to year and a half the confidence doesn't seem to be in large corporations in news. So I'm curious, you know, when, when you hear people say subscribing is the answer, does that sit well with you? Do you think that is, or do you think there's another piece to this puzzle that maybe isn't getting as much talk time? Well, I think uh, subscribing, which really now is the sort of notion of the paywall where you know, subscribers have access to the content of a newspaper and non-subscribers uh, can't get to that content or have only limited access to that content. Uh, that seems to be working very well for the large national papers. Uh, the New York Times, for instance, is, the Washington Post, 
the Los Angeles Times, uh, papers like that. That seems to be working very, very well for them. The New York Times has more reporters now employed full-time than it ever has in the history of the paper. And those reporters are really free because of that paywall. They're free to really pursue um, stories and really dig up information. And they're not so tied to sort of, uh, you know, following the kind of hot news of the day um, that other papers sort of have to get, have to be tied to. But for the smaller dailies, the smaller weeklies, um, that just doesn't seem to be a very viable model. Um, and, you know, the trend may, we might wind up in the same trend that, say, you see in um, the UK, in England, where basically there's 10 or 12 national newspapers, um, and that's it. You know, there really aren't local papers. There really aren't uh, city papers. There really aren't uh, weekly papers to any great extent. Um, you know, you just have about a dozen national newspapers, and that's how people get people get their news. And there's very little, if any, local news coverage, um, other than you know these sort of uh, citizen journalists who might be covering a town or a city or a village, um, you know, on their own. Uh, and that would be a shame for us because we're a big country and uh, much, much bigger, much more varied than a country like the UK um, with a lot of different voices. And it would be a shame if that were limited to just national news organizations. It, it's interesting you bring that up because that has definitely been something that I've, I've heard before. And I, I think even for the folks who, who maybe are completely disconnected from their local news organization, um, they're that probably seems like such a far distant out in the the wind idea or concept that all of these smaller regional local city um, papers even even in some of the most rural communities could completely disappear but you act you you do believe that that is that's something that we could see happen in the coming years I think so um, and I think the uh, this coronavirus pandemic if it you know, if it lasts a long time and, uh, you know, we see the economy, um, you know, kind of tottering along uh, like it is right now, um, you know, there's the, the, the question of the viability of some of local papers uh, is, is really, you know, that's going to be in question. Will they be able to, will they be viable? Will they be, will they be able to uh, see this out? There has been some talk of the newspaper industry um, you know, applying for uh, federal aid uh, as sort of an essential service and getting separate federal aid, you know, it's kind of the way hospitals uh, might get, kind of the way state governments might get. Um, but that doesn't seem to have a lot of legs in Congress. Um, but, you know, barring that, I think we'll see, you know, a number of papers go out of business. Um, and again, you know, while we might say, well, nobody reads the paper. Well, you know, is that true? Sort of yes and no. Yeah, I mean, we certainly don't see a lot of people reading a paper. What we, but what we do see is people uh, going to the, uh, the website, going to the Twitter feeds, going to the, um, you know, Facebook feeds, going to the, um, you know, the, the, the different, uh, internet feeds that papers put out, uh, 
that provide a lot of local news. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, what other source do we have for local news? What other source do we have for, um, you know, what our police departments are doing, what our local city, you know, local city and county governments are doing? Um, you know, who's watching them if we don't have local news organizations? What does the pandemic do uh, in terms of changing the way colleges and universities train and educate and develop future journalists? I'm very curious about that. Your your thoughts on that in terms of big picture, um, you know, how does the the moment in history we're living through make this evolve moving forward? Well, uh, in the short term, we have to... Uh, convince students they should come to college at all next year, right? Um, I was watching a story today, and this was one of the first ones I've seen that was really sort of, uh, you know, looked at the big picture rather than just the Ivy League picture. Um, Something like, uh, you know, for most colleges, uh, this Friday is the deadline uh, to put down your deposit if you're a college freshman, to put down your deposit and say, I'm coming to school. Well, right now, something like half of all accepted students have not yet made their deposit, um, which is very telling, um, that, you know, because it, in a normal year, you'd see like 80 to 85 percent of students have made their deposits by now and said, yes, I, I, I am coming to your school. I will show up in the fall. Um, so the first thing is to try to get students <laughs> into college. Given that um, it appears, and, and it can't, we can't say this for sure, but it appears um, that many residential colleges may not open their residence halls and may ask students to, um, you know, take classes online. Well, there's an awful lot of students who, if they were going to a residential college, don't particularly want to take classes online. They wanted to be on campus. Uh, they wanted to be in the dorms, in the dining halls. They wanted the campus experience. They wanted to be in the classroom with their professors and maybe take an online course or two, right? Um, so instead, we see students saying, I'm going to take a gap year. You know, that famous uh, new term that's been around for about the last 10 or 20 years. I'm going to take a year off in between high school and college. We call it a gap year. Um, and so, you know, so we're seeing that First, we've got to get the students to come in. Um, secondly, how do, we, how do we train them differently? Well, I think we have to train them as we've learned to train them in the last 10 to 20 years. Uh, you know, if you want to be a journalist, you have to learn to write for the internet. Uh, you have to learn um, how, to, how to write stories, how to, how to write a catchy uh, headline, how to draw people into your story how to write a one paragraph intro that draws someone into a longer story. Um, You know, so they they need to learn uh, what we call convergent media writing, right? And this has been a a term that's been around for a while, but it becomes even more important now as, you know, we start to see, you know, this sort of ever shifting media landscape of what outlets are available. I mean, students need to learn how to write for, for print journalism, for the internet, for social media outlets, uh, for television news. Um, so they need to learn, if they have a story, they need to learn how to shape that story for a variety of outlets. 
uh, they need to learn to do what you do as an example. You know, um, you know, think about what you do. You interview people, you cut those in, you know, you, you show a whole interview, you cut the, that interview into segments for different purposes. You repurpose the interview. You take the information from the interview and you write it up as a story for your website. You write it up as a story for a Twitter feed. Um, you know, that's convergent writing. You know, all these media that converge together, um, students need to learn how to repurpose every story for every possible outlet they can. Um, and that's maybe the biggest change. What hasn't changed is if someone's going to be a, a journalist in any media, uh, they need to learn journalistic techniques, they need to learn how to do research, they need to learn how to fact check, they need to learn how to write grammatically correctly, uh, and you know they need to learn uh, you know the ethics of journalism. Those things haven't changed. Right. What has changed is they need to be multimedia journalists. All of them need to do that all the time. So in terms of training that next, and obviously the, the broad context of what you just laid out is, is it's spot on, of course. Um, but I'm curious, does the opportunity to sort of teach those skills during you know, a, a moment like this provide the opportunity for an extra layer of learning that, and, and maybe even a, an extra layer of interest from some folks who are from some prospective students who maybe weren't interested in journalism right off the bat, uh, the opportunity to, you know, bring a new crowd in or even potentially, uh, you know, create the next great generation of journalists because of this environment that they will undoubtedly be learning in even if the pandemic is over in say 12 months, uh, this is going to leave a mark and it is going to leave a mark to a point where there are going to be plenty of stories to tell for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I think any, any crisis uh, tends to inspire a certain set of young people to want to tell the stories of that crisis. Uh, and that engenders uh, interest in journalism. Uh, why? Well, because right now, you know, young people are paying more attention to the news than they might have two months ago. And why? Because they, they want information as much as everybody else does. And where are they going to turn, where are most of them going to turn for that information? They're going to turn to the news media. Sure. I mean, yeah, they're, they're also checking uh, TikTok and they're checking, um, you know, Facebook feeds and those kinds of things. Um, and they're reading the sort of rumors and the misinformation, but they're also looking at people on TV. They're looking at people um, on news feeds and they're seeing, you know, how they act and what they say. And many of them will get inspired to do the same thing because they're paying closer attention to it for the first time. Um, and that, you know, that can, and I think we, you know, we saw that after 9-11, um, a whole generation of people who, you know, the news coverage during not the news coverage during that great crisis, um, inspired people to become journalists. Um, if we look back even further, uh, the Watergate affair, uh, and the decline, uh, you know, that crisis and the decline in trust of government organizations that were, that was engendered by that. 
um, that inspired people to become journalists. So, you know, these, these crises where we turn to our news media for information, um, you know, do tend to inspire young people to want to do the same thing and to get out there and tell the stories. So, you know, I think we'll see a wave of interest in the next, uh, you know, starting about five years from now, uh, we'll start to see a nice wave of interest in people wanting to become journalists again. Um, and they'll have a much better handle on what modern journalism is than I do and, and probably than, than you do five years from now. Yeah. Um, so when we talk about colleges, a lot of folks obviously putting a lot of um, putting a lot on this coming fall and whether students are going to be there, whether it's going to be a little bit of remote learning for a while before things start to shift back the other way. Um, either way, though, learning seems to when I talk to folks in education, uh, there seems to be this impression that educating has changed probably permanently now. Um, do you see more digital, even when normal comes back or whatever normal looks like moving forward, do you see more of these sort of digital opportunities becoming the norm as opposed to a lot of this rigorous sort of you must be in this location for this amount of time in order to receive X, Y, and Z credits? Yeah, sure. I think um, a lot of um, faculty in particular and, and some administrators um, are seeing that perhaps there are some um, opportunities going forward um, to offer subject areas and offer classes um, in more in, in, in electronic formats that they hadn't really maybe considered before. So I think we will see um, some of that. Um, will it be the start of a big trend? I, you know, I don't know. I think the trend was already there um, in, terms of, um, in terms of online learning. Remember, online learning is convenient um, because people can do it from home. They can do it, you know, they're not time bound. They're not place bound uh, when it comes to online learning. So, you know, there has been a trend over the last 20 years for more and more online learning. Will this accelerate it? Uh, you know, it's hard to know. And the reason it's hard to know is that um, there are still many students out there who said, hey, we're saying right now, look, I did not sign up to take online classes. I signed up to be in the classroom. I really don't like this. This is not what I signed up for. And if you're going to do it in the fall, I have to be honest, I'm not interested. That's interesting. I'd rather take, I'd rather take some time off. Um, so there is some of that going on and, you know, so I think, you know, we're seeing some resistance on students' parts to, um, an increase in online learning, particularly if they're being forced to do it. Plus, um, you know, up here in upstate New York, this is very different than someone living, say, in, um, New York City in some ways. Remember, there are a lot of rural areas up here where there's no access to broadband internet which puts students at a very, very uh, strong disadvantage when it comes to online learning. Uh, and, you know, there are many pockets of poverty up here where students, uh, you know, they might not have a uh, laptop or a desktop at home. Maybe all they've got is their phone. Well, it turns out having a phone is not a very desirable way to participate in online learning. It really does take a laptop or a desktop. And, you know, and, and that means an investment. 
Um, you know, I was watching a commercial the other day for this, um, it's a for-profit school called Independence University. They've been running commercials very heavily about, well, we do all online learning. And when you sign up with us, we're going to give you a laptop so that you can participate. Well, you know what? That's pretty smart because um, what they're realizing is that, you know, there's an awful lot of people out there that don't have laptops or desktops anymore. They've been relying on their phone and they're not going to get through an online course if all they have is their phone. Mm -hmm. When, when you see things like that, does the value proposition come up and how often does it come up? Because one of the things that we've heard, especially from folks at private, private four-year, uh, some of the private four-year schools in the Finger Lakes region in upstate New York, is that they don't see a scenario where they will be willing to pay full price if they cannot go to the campus and be on campus. If, if this is going to be a digital experience, the, the price point has to come way down. And I would assume to some degree, every institution is, every higher education institution would face that same, uh, that same question to some degree, obviously varying degrees. Um, but your thoughts on, on that part of it and how maybe some of these universities and colleges can maybe, like you said, offer some extra thing to potentially get that value back up without completely crushing their bottom line in the process. Yeah, I think it's very difficult for residential campuses um, to kind of recoup the money that they're going to lose if students don't come. Because, um, you know, if, I, if I'm a student and um, say I'm enrolled at uh, a private four-year institution and they tell me that next year, um, you know, I can't come on campus, well, first thing is I'm not paying room and board. That's a huge hit. To that institution because they do make a substantial amount of money on the room and board charges. I mean, that's a profit center for them. Um, and then, you know, if I was uh, a student in a school like that, the tuition was 30, 40,000, even 50,000 a year for tuition. And um, they were telling me that, look, uh, you've got to take everything online this semester. Uh, I would think very hard about whether that was worth it. And I'm not sure what value-added piece uh, can be given to that student um, for, you know, for that kind of, uh, for those kinds of tuition dollars, um, which is why we're seeing students saying, you know what, I'm going to take a year off. Um, you know, I'm going to defer admission for a year. Uh, I'm going to uh, take a leave of absence for a year and, and come back when the dorms are open. Um, I don't know that there's a whole lot a, a private four-year liberal arts college uh, that's not going to let students in the dorms and is going to say to students, everything is going to be online. I'm not sure there's a whole lot they can do uh, to add value to that proposition to convince students that it's worth the money. Um, you know, I think it's a real problem for those schools. And I, and I, and again, you know, I think the, uh, you know, the president of Brown University had an op-ed in the New York Times this weekend, and I think she was absolutely right. You know, as a society, we need to be thinking about, you know, how we're going to help many of these colleges keep going um, during this crisis, because they're going to be in real, so many of them are going to be in real financial trouble. Um, and they're not going to survive without some kind of um, support. Um, where that support comes from, or if there's any 
um, so, you know, any, any support for providing funds for colleges? I don't know. Um, but it's also important to remember that in many uh, cities and towns, those private schools are economic engines. You know, think about, um, you know, Hobart and William Smith in Geneva and how many people work there and the influx of money that comes in when the students appear on campus. Think about Syracuse University. I mean, Syracuse University is, um, I think the largest employer in Onondaga County. Um, you know, that's an economic engine in, you know, in Onondaga County in the city of Syracuse. And many of these colleges are. Uh, and I think that really needs to be taken into consideration uh, that many of these colleges tend to be the largest employers in their cities and towns um, and provide many more jobs than any manufacturer does in those cities and towns. Look at Oswego State in Oswego County. I think they're the largest employer in Oswego County. Um, you know, if they have problems, then that entire region has a problem. So, you know, we, we, we do need to be, you know, thinking about that going forward. And I think that's, you know, again, I, I said this earlier, that's something the media hasn't really paid a lot of attention to. They've been paying a lot of attention to these statements that are coming out of the Ivy League schools. And that's a very different experience than what we find in local colleges and universities. And to that end, um, we've we've heard some concern from communities like Geneva, and, and especially in the Wells College community, we've also been hearing it a little bit there about the the financial implications of this scenario. Um, if if you're sort of anecdotally thinking about the the world of colleges and universities, especially in upstate New York, for, for context, so people understand what you're, what you're talking about here, a year or two, assuming that normal doesn't come back for a couple, a couple runs, a couple rounds, um, what does that look like for a college? Like if, say, 50% of students just decide that, that you know, this upcoming school year is not going to be for them, they will start the next time around. How quickly does it sort of fizzle out the bottom line that is um, for colleges and universities? Because I, I, it seems like there's a bit of a disconnect in terms of just how expensive it is to run even a small, uh, small community college. Like it is, it is expensive business. It, educating people costs a lot of money. Sure. I, well, I think it, it affects the bottom line immediately, and I think you know if if, if we see, um, you know. 10, 15, 20, 25% declines in enrollment next year, which certainly are, are possible at many schools, um, you know, we'll start to see workforce reductions in those schools. Mm -hmm. um, and those workforce reductions, you know, will be layoffs. Um, and, you know, there'll be layoffs if you have a 25% decline in enrollment, um, you know, that you're looking at 15, 20, 25% uh, workforce reductions and layoffs. If it goes on for two years, um, you know, I think you'll start to see that some of the smaller uh, private liberal arts colleges um, may not be financially viable if they don't have large endowments, and many of them don't. Um, and they may, and they may not, they may not come out of it at the other end. They may, they may be closed. There's a real fear that some of the smaller institutions, particularly the private ones, could close. The public institutions, um, like our you know, SUNY schools and our community colleges, um, you know, they may see workforce reductions as well, but 
you know, they at least can count on, so, on state funding. And even though the state funding um, might be reduced uh, and probably will be reduced, uh, at least some of it will still be there. So those schools are unlikely to, um, um, unlikely to go away. But there's a real risk, I think, for some of the smaller private liberal arts colleges um, you know, that have been kind of barely holding on the last 10, 20 years. Uh, you know, this could be the death knell. You know, obviously, I hope that that doesn't happen. That would be a terrible thing. Um, and that's why I think, you know, the government really should be thinking about, um, you know, how it can support uh, higher ed going forward. Higher ed is very, it's very important in terms of giving people opportunity uh, in this country. Uh, and it's very important um, as an economic engine in the communities that they are located in. One thing that you are watching moving forward um, if there is one thing that you sort of had to key in on over the next, say, two to three months, what's that thing that everyone really should be paying attention to? Well, I, 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 I hope that it's obvious. Uh, and that is, um, how do we act uh, and behave uh, as we start to reopen and as we start to rev up the economy again? And, you know, where do we get that information from? And how reliable is that information? I mean, that's what we all really need to key in on. Um, none of us want to get sick. Uh, and none of us want to get sick and die. Uh, and this is a, a dangerous virus, and it, it does kill people. Um, so I think we're really going to be relying on the media for that information. You know, what is it we're supposed to do? Uh, how do we keep ourselves safe? How do we keep our family members safe? And at the same time, you know, how do we, you know, support uh, the economy and bring jobs back and keep businesses open? Because, you know, those things are important. Um, now, you know, I, I will say, I thought, you know, our governor said something that was very telling the other day. He said, look, you know, you can either, you know, yeah, yeah, okay, so some of us are faced with a choice. Either we have money uh, or we die. Um, you know, not having money is temporary. Dying is permanent. So you know, it's not it's not really that much of a choice. Um, so you know, none of us want to get sick. None of us want to die from this uh, pandemic. We're going to be very reliant on the media to give us the right information, give us correct and reliable information. Uh, about how to protect the public health and how to protect our own health. And I think that's going to be the most important thing um, over the next 12 months. As always, Steve, appreciate the time. Thanks for uh, chatting with us. Uh, Josh, thanks for having me. This is always a pleasure to talk to you. You do a great show here. I really, really enjoy it. Appreciate hearing that.